everyone. Thanks for tuning into Power Athlete Radio. So you think you've got a decent idea of how to bring your athletes or even yourself to the very edge of your performance capacity. Maybe you've got some physical components down, but I assure you that after listening to this episode, you'll be reevaluating how you communicate, how you evaluate and how you measure success. Every nuanced interaction with your athletes can have an incredible impact on their ability to be fierce competitors whose identity is not wrapped up in the sport itself. This is the wish that we have for all of our athletes and really anyone whose job it is to be challenged at the highest levels. To know that sport is merely an expression of the person's character trait that desires to be tested. Two-time Olympic medalist, national and world champion Nicole Davis has worked alongside coach Pete Carroll of the Seahawks and renowned sports psychologist Dr. Michael Gervais to develop techniques to battle the old-school approach to performance training. This podcast is so fucking good, and I pinch myself that people like this come on the show. So thanks again to Nicole. Here it is, episode 314. Nation, what's happening? It's time again for another episode of the premier podcast, podcast in strength and, and conditioning. Ing, what was that third ing? Ing, oh, the big guy's not here. <laughs> you know That's what that right. means. This is just your co host, Luke Summers, and the Tex other co host, Tex McQuilkin, uninterrupted by our featured guest, CEO, founder of Power Athlete, John. Wellborn. For those who don't know, John Wellborn was a 10-year NFL veteran, played for the Chiefs, Eagles, and Patriots. Yeah, what stories Over can we tell? Over 100 career starts, 10 playoff appearances, and the owner of a samurai sword. <laughs> 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 Did I ever tell you about the story where I went and to, got the samurai sword with my pal? Oh, Rick in Japan? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Hey, listeners, in case you haven't noticed, if you don't show up for the show as one of the A, featured guests, or one of the B, co-hosts, Burn ban's off. The burn ban is off, and you get burned. But you will be happy to know that Tex is wearing his ladies' boat shoes today. No, no, no. They're just no. boat shoes. No, no. You they're, can omit that first they description. Are ladies, the adjective. Boat shoes. Take that at adjective at. Let me take take up. Let me see those. Take them off. They're easy. Slip on, slip off. So Luke is able to take them ladies off. Ladies and gentlemen, what you see here is a lady's boat shoe. Stop saying brand. lady. It's black it's, with a white sole. It's got the gum sole. And uh, th- like I said, there great are six, for spike ball six and eyelets. winning. They're six winning. Six eyelets on this. They help with winning at spike ball against A, Luke Summers. U.S. men, nine and a half. Women, there you go, men. Men. But the, look at this opening here. Like this opening is so huge. It looks like a slipper. I swear that is a slipper. That is a woman's slipper cut <laughs> on Vans. You just read the men's size written. Ladies and gentlemen, in the shoe. I will be posting this video to YouTube. And you Go will be for it. <laughs> Head to the Power Athlete YouTube channel, and you're going to see this podcast. And you know where I'm going to be rocking these shoes? Summer Strong. At the Power Athlete oh, yeah. Symposium oh, 2019. Shit. It is time, ladies and gentlemen, to bring forth the rhythm and the rhyme, the premier strength and conditioning Ing. Ing, uh, symposium in Austin in December. The Power Athlete Symposium. We don't. There should be another word in there. Power Athlete Symposium. 2019. Or the, the hashtag 2019 P pass. P-A-S. That's right. So if you think that you want to go to this thing, what you do, tickets are on sale. Hurry up. We got some early bird specials. You got to head to events.powerathletehq.com slash symposium 
and everything's going to be there. Everything you're ever going to want to know, except for maybe speaker lineup, because that's still um, that's still in the works. We're still bribing people to you know grace us with their time and grace, bribing. Well, with our good looks and our charming banter, much like the banter we have here today. Yes, excellent episode. Did you know what I tried to watch last night? No. Is uh uh, what's the sh- what's Lost? the movie I told you? No, that's not a try to lost or try to watch. It, the, the show from China that I talked about the other day. Oh, the highest grossing that, movie. The, yeah, the third highest history. grossing oh, that, movie of all time in the world. That global warming propaganda. Yeah, it's called Climate Change Text A. B. Do you, the premise is, and this isn't a spoiler, they are put, they're building, I fell asleep. <laughs> they're building huge rocket propulsion factories into the earth. To push the Earth out of the orbit uh, that it's currently in. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm talking about huge, huge rocket boosters in Earth to to propel Earth out of its orbit. Well, it's a flat disk. Those rockets would just turn it and spin it like a coin. That's the stupidest movie premise I've ever heard. Fictional movie. The Earth is a globe like it is in real world. So this is fiction. But could you imagine, seriously, could you imagine the the ramifications of shifting Earth out of orbit? Like there would be, if I've learned anything from other movies that are fake, there would be huge impacts on like, dude, wouldn't the the whole tide shift? Wouldn't there be like massive flooding? Uh, Well, yeah, and we would freeze like Mars. Why would we change? We're going to Mars's space, and then we run into Mars. No, we're going way out, and we collide. It's a two-thousand-year journey, a two-thousand-year journey out of orbit to another sun that's not exploding. So, what's the fuel situation? I didn't get that far, but magma. Hoping they. We're gonna run out of magma. (laughs) Everybody good with magma in here? Okay, checking on hot magma. Um, so I'm. I gotta. I gotta finish that. So is this? episode brought to you by that awful (laughs) yeah if anyone wants to go watch that i i strongly encourage it apparently has the um uh like the the highest grossing global uh ticket sales or whatever it beat the avengers no third third but still so netflix picked it up is translating it into a bunch of languages and stuff so um anyways what were we talking about our guest <laughs> special oh guest. yeah that's right you're listening to premier podcast and strength conditioning ing. tex has ing his boat shoes on for ladies no um, stop get for the ladies powerathletehq.com slash symposium it's going to be in austin texas december 5th 6th and 7th i think that's the dates 5th 6th and 7th thursday friday saturday this year people so you're going to have to get an extra an extra day off of work if you even have a job, you lazy bums. But as we're going to learn in today's episode with the absolutely stunning guest, uh, great conversation, is that maybe that's your version of success and you got it all figured out and you're much like the dude, a.k.a. the big Lebowski, Joffrey Lebowski, where um, you have a sense of identity, you know who you are, and you know and have the confidence to get through the, the rigors of daily life. And what do you do for a living? Uh, I'm unemployed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, enough about us, enough jibber jabber, um, enough about Wellborn Samurai Sword. Why don't we get to it? Ladies and gentlemen, we have Nicole Davis, who's uh, a, what was, how long? 11 years on the U.S. national volleyball team. Uh-huh. So Two time Olympic gold, uh, silver medalist. So part she's of me. savage, savage, and a super sharp cat. She's doing some great things um, with Pete Carroll and his organization. We're going to learn all about it, and you're going to. 
hopefully this shifts your perspective on how you approach your day to day and coaching. I, I learned a lot. I took a lot of notes, mm-hmm. but you know, not all of us are coaches Tex. I've retired. I'm taking on, I'm couching. My okay. new is couching. Were well, you retiring? You know what this means? No. During our conditioning sessions in which you try right, to no, coach co- me up. No, 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 no. I'm a you, coach. Yeah, I'm still coaching that, th- those sessions. <laughs> okay, your breaks are still allowed. Okay. All right, people, here we go. Thanks for jumping on the show. Mm-hmm. Um, I on, guess- on short notice. So it was a, a quick time frame to get you on. You even wanted to come on earlier, but uh, I had to hold you off a week. <laughs> I travel a lot, so I, I fit things in when I can. Nice. What uh, is that part of ju- like speaking gig, or what's what's going on with the travel, sports? Yeah, so I work for a company called Compete to Create. If you're familiar, co-founded by Pete Carroll and uh, performance psychologist Dr. Mike Trevay. So we travel. Um, it goes in waves, but we'll, uh, we travel quite a bit to do um, typically eight-hour training events with our corporate clients. Nice. Well, I guess so, uh, I'm off to DC tomorrow. Oh, nice. All right. So one of our larger corporate clients. And I, how about if, uh, you know, listeners aren't familiar with you, why don't you, why don't you give them just a little bit of background and, and maybe how you got yourself and landed yourself in this gig? <laughs> sure. Uh, my background is in sport, two-time Olympian, two-time silver medalist. I competed in the 2008-2012 Olympic Games and then retired in 2015 from sport prior to uh, being on the USA volleyball team. Uh, I went to the University of Southern California where we won two national championships and uh, prior to that grew up in Northern California. So I landed this gig um, with Compete to Create right after I retired. I've actually, uh, so the Companies co-founded by head coach of the Seattle Seahawks, Pete Carroll. And uh, Pete actually came to USC the spring of my freshman year. And his daughter played volleyball with me at USC. So I've known the Carroll family for 20 years. And right around the time that I was retiring, uh, Compete to Create sort of was... um, being nurtured into the company that it is now. Uh, Compete to Create used to be, Coach Carroll had a company called Win Forever uh, that he started when he was at USC. And it was, um, I think it was really meant to be like a coach's resource. And so what happened was he and Dr. Mike Gervais, a performance psychologist, uh, they had been working together for a bit of time and about two months before the Super Bowl that the Seahawks won, they kind of looked at each other and said, man, this feels really good what we've been creating here in our program. I wonder if anyone outside of sport would be interested. And it was around that same time that Coach Carroll gave a keynote at Microsoft and Satya Nadella had just taken over in his role as CEO at Microsoft. Uh, He was, I want to say, two to three months into his role. So Coach Carroll gave a keynote and Satya came up to him. Coach Carroll's IP is in in developing high-performing cultures. So if you're a listener, whether you like Coach Carroll or not, uh, it's a hard argument that he's not great at developing high-performing cultures and he's right. got a proven track record of that. And so Coach Carroll was keynoting about developing culture. And so Satya came up to Coach Carroll and said, this is exactly what I've been thinking uh, for the culture at Microsoft. Can you teach this to everyone? And Microsoft, if you don't know, globally has more than 100,000 employees. And Coach Carroll was like, no, I can't. I've got a day job. Um, but that started a relationship uh, between uh, what is now our company, Compete to Create, and Microsoft and other corporate Uh, organizations and so what we do essentially is uh, mindset training uh, with a a layer of a cultural methodology Um, 
to, to really help people pursue their best, to perform their best under pressure. But, you know, if we stop there, it's kind of a miss. Uh, we, we're hoping that people really have a, an amazing life. <laughs> you know, like uh, I think often we think of um, performance and excellence as dichotomous to joy and um, thriving and flourishing. So that's that's part of the process as well. Anyways, when I retired in 2015, this relationship with Microsoft had just started. And so uh, Jamie... Uh, formerly Carol, now Davern, who is Pete's daughter, but the president of our company, was telling me about Compete to Create. And I thought, I can do that, which is what I often think. And then there's a voice in my head that says, Nicole, can you actually do that? <laughs> and uh, and so I, um, I, my training really was to go to an event. And at that time, Dr. Mike was kind of doing all of the training. And I got hooked right away. I had been actually sorry, that's a long story. I had, I had sent my resume out to all my SC network when I retired because I didn't know what the hell I was going to do. You know, I, I had a dream job being on the USA team and playing professionally in all these cool countries for 12 years. So my mindset when I retired was like, screw it. Uh, I thrive in challenging situations. Let me just find like a, the most challenging situation where the pay is good so that I'm one challenge to the money I'm making can facilitate my other passions in life. You know, that was my mindset when I retired because I didn't think it was possible to replace what I had uh, as a professional athlete, an Olympic athlete. And, but something kept feeling I was missing when I was going through this interview process, you know? And what I realized when I went to the first day with Compete to Create with Dr. Mike was one of our corporate clients was that the impact piece was missing for me. And what's amazing as Olympic athletes, not everyone capitalizes on this, but as an Olympic athlete, we have an inherent platform to make a difference in some sort of way. Uh, and uh, I really, uh, I really resonated with that, especially at the end of my career and, and what I found in this first day that I spent with, with Dr. Mike and with this corporate client is in the beginning of the day, everyone's super smart. So in the beginning of the day, it's like, how do I apply these mindset skills to my role here in this job so I can be a higher performer? And then finally at 2 p.m., six hours into the training, a guy raises his hand, he stands up and says, I have a 12-year-old niece. How do I help her be more confident? And I was like, that's it right there. Because I wish I would have known when I was 12, year old, 12 years old what I know now about the mind and how it relates to performance and our experiences when we get on the edge of our capacity, you know. And so for me, that was the hook. And uh, so I went back and I, I told Jamie and, and the crew at Compete to Create, like, hell yeah, I'm in. Let's do this. So that's the long version of that story. I apologize. And it's not even that long. I mean, we're like, <laughs> you know, we're seven minutes in. That was That was perfect. I think that's great because, you know, we, the, the guy who founded Power Athlete uh, can't be here today. Uh, he's out running some errands. We've had a heck of a couple of weeks, but he's a former NFL dude. And, and Berkeley guy. And Berkeley guy. So, and would want to say that. But, uh, <laughs> but we hear from that stage, which is similar to like a, a, an Olympian stage, the NFL, it's one of the highest like competitive honors of sport. When people transition out of there, it's hard for those guys to find, like, to, to fill that void, right? And uh, whether it's camaraderie or just being able to perform at your peak potential, like, what are you going to sell fucking cars, you know, like be a Ford car salesman? I'd be pretty good at that, though. Well, you're not a have professional you driven, athlete. Have you driven Ford uh, Escalade? <laughs> I'm not a Ford guy. Anyway, well, uh, we listened to your TED Talk in preparation for the show, and you talked a little bit about that, where your sport, your competition meshes with your identity and how that was one of the challenges you had to overcome 
So let's let's jump into that and uh, the TED Talk, guys. Easy, easy to search. Um, so, what about separating that I- identity and the roles that you play as an athlete? Yeah. So there's this the the phenomenon is actually called identity foreclosure. And so what takes place for, for many of us is that when we're young and uh, a talent is identified early, whether that's you're really smart or you're a great volleyball player, the conversations that get designed around us as young people with a talent is around the thing that we do rather than who we are. So, oh, honey, you're such a great volleyball player or your grades are so good, you must be really smart rather than you are so kind and so generous. I just love when you go out and express yourself through this sport, for example. So we start to foreclose our identity with the thing that we do rather than who we are. And what takes place for many of us is that what what results is when there comes a time for us to really just express all of the work that we've done into into our craft. Uh, that moment in time feels like there's a lot of, at stake because it feels like our identity is at stake rather than a great opportunity to express who I am in an authentic way through this craft that I love. And so way, the way that shows up for, for people who've been told they're intelligent their whole life is that they have a brilliant idea, they're in a boardroom, let's say, and they're not sure if it's safe to say their brilliant idea because maybe psychological safety isn't present or maybe there's that one person that is a contrarian that will always have something to say opposite of what you have to. And so they don't raise their hand and they don't say the thing because it feels like their identity is at stake if they get judged and so as for athletes that results in a lot of anxiety and so I think it's it's really important I think it's also one of the reasons why it's so hard for for many people whether they're Olympic or professional athletes or special forces operators to transition in life after a career is because their identity is so enmeshed in the thing that they were doing and they don't know who they are outside of that thing. And so when they step out of the context of what they were doing, there's this huge void, which is who am I now? And if you haven't done the work to really anchor words and phrases to who you are as a human being outside of the roles you play, whether it's as an athlete or a mom or you know an entrepreneur, if you don't have something to anchor to or a reference point, it's really easy to get pushed around by life and by others. They'll dictate how you show up rather than you dictating how you show up, especially in moments of test. Yeah, I've seen this you know, my old man was a dentist for 50 years and just re- is like on the verge of retiring. And he's often talked about this over the past five to 10 years as he's approaches, approached this point is like, my identity is a dentist. I don't know what I'm going to be once I'm not, you know, and it's pretty interesting for someone who's been in a career for so long to, to then separate from it. And you, you had mentioned, you know, unless you're doing the work to create that identity internally, you know, you're going to have a hard time with that. What What are some examples of the work that would one could put in place to prepare for that, you know, I guess, unwinding that foreclosure? Yeah. At, at Compete to Create, we call this de- developing a personal philosophy. And most people have some sort of personal philosophy. So a personal philosophy is your, your set of guiding principles. What do you stand for as a human being? Most of us have, have some sort of set some sort of guiding principles, but we've not taken the time to write them down and anchor anchor them to paper, commit them to memory, so that when something takes place, we're not quite sure how to have conviction in that moment because there's not a ton of clarity. And so really the process of, of, of getting clear on this is to do the work, write it down. 
to spend some time thinking about, for example, um, who, who are the people that you admire most in life and what are the qualities in them that you admire? What are words and phrases that have helped shape you? What are words that you use often in your daily language? What were pivotal moments in your life and what was guiding you in those moments to make difficult decisions? These are all what we call self-discovery process, but really like distilling down all of the, the thoughts and the principles and the values that we have into some type of concise statement in 25 words or less so that when things get really challenging for you, that you have great clarity in what it is that you stand for as a human being. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. is a really wonderful example of someone who stood for something and there was great, great clarity around it, so much so that we know what he stood for. And it, because it didn't matter if it was a calm environment or a hostile environment, he talked about it and he was about it, right? And so what is that for you? Like, what, what is the filter for your thoughts, words, and actions? And so for your dad, it sounds like something that he stands for is helping other people. He doesn't have to be a dentist to help other people. Right. I had read Pete Carroll's book years ago when I was in the, the sport coach side of things. And I, I remember very clearly now that you kind of bring this up, it was develop your own philosophy. And he explained his and the process, like going through, I guess, being fired at one point from his NFL, one of the gigs and having an off season or a full year. can't remember the exact time to develop and define that philosophy. So having a bit of a, a flashback here, Nicole, but let's, let's continue to dive into that. So I know your, your athletic career, I'm sure there were some ups, some downs, some challenges. So did you face these lessons before kind of diving into the, the, the Pete Carroll philosophy here and come out with almost these same conclusions yourself to identify who you were? Wish. (laughs) (laughs) The two-time Olympian, the best in the world in my position before I learned that you could formally train your mind. So uh, it's not to say you can't be a high performer and not formally train your mind, but my experience was that it was a pretty clunky process and I got in the way of myself being my best often. And that there were so many days that I would leave the gym uh, feeling like a failure, even if it was an epic practice, but there was that one mistake that I would hold on to, you know? Uh, and so I didn't have great command of mine to be able to, um, to, to coach myself up or hold myself in, in, in a way that allowed me to enjoy the process of getting my butt kicked every single day uh, and really pursuing mastery. So the, the short, short answer is no, I didn't, I didn't know until, you know, eight years, nine years into my career that you could do this work and what a difference it would make, not only in consistency of performance, but the consistency of my experience around getting to the edge of my capacity. And then maybe most importantly, how I was showing up for others. You know, it's a, if you can't get yourself right in a moment of test, it's really challenging to be good for those around you. And no one pursues potential alone. You know, even if we look at individual athletes, Serena Williams, uh, Roger Federer, it, it doesn't matter who, who comes to mind for you, they have a tribe around them. And so we need others to explore potential. So I hadn't done this work, and my experience suffered because of it. That was something that I was trying to articulate at the, a talk I recently did, Nicole, is the importance of this tribe, right? I, I've had a good, we've had a good opportunity to travel around and meet a lot of coaches in uh, whether it's in the seminar circuit or going to events or them actually coming to us. And I just feel like a lot of the coaches we deal with find themselves on an island and they lack this, this tribe or this community to challenge them 
or, you know, the proverbial iron sharpens iron. And as you get into, you know, some of the exercises you're talking about here and developing a set of principles, man, like I can only imagine trying to internalize that and do that, you know, on an island by yourself without discussing some of this stuff with trusted confidants and people who love you and you love them. And it's like, and are willing to cut through the bullshit and be like, eh, I, you know, I think you're onto something here, but, and, um, I'm just curious why we find ourselves or why coaches in this space find themselves on this freaking Island. And I think that that, that could be a lending to this, I guess, lack of support and confidence where, uh, to, bring your scenario from your TED talk where people aren't willing to raise their hand and get up there. And they are threatened by an audience rather than understand that there's people in there that probably support them, you know? I think uh, in the context of coaching, there are a couple of things that tend to happen. Uh, one is I think a lot of coaches go into their, their job with the best of intentions and some sort of idea of how they want to run things or um, what they value most. And then, when things don't go as planned, that's really uh, the testament. You know, does the coach know exactly who he is or she is and what he or she stands for? So now we're going back to the work on personal philosophy. And this is why it was so critical, critical for Coach Carroll is he had been in lots of situations, some successful, some not. But he felt like he was getting pushed around, you know because he wasn't clear on how he wanted to show up and be in the times of test. And so if you're not clear, how can you expect people to act in accordance with you or follow you as a leader? So I think the first part of it is like, I, I think even though a lot of coaches have the best of intentions, they're not clear on who they are as a human being and how, how, what values they want to show up and live in alignment with. I think the second part is, is that when we've had some degree of success, it's really easy to fall back to those patterns Rather than stay open to learning, it feels vulnerable to admit that you have space to learn and grow when you're expected to be the credible voice amongst others. Because that means, wait, wait, I, I, I don't have all the answers, <laughs> you know? And so there's this model, this backwards model that has existed, especially in our country, for a very long time that coaching is a top-down process, and that's archaic. Coaching is not just a top-down process. It's a bottom-up process. It's a parallel process. But if we're not willing to be on the path of mastery, so now this goes gets into like what is our definition of success or high performance, if all you care about is outcomes and your model is to compare yourself to others, then you'll never be open to being coached or to, being, uh, to be held accountable as a coach or as a person uh, in a, in a role of leadership because it feels like um, you no longer have credibility if you open yourself up to that. One of the beautiful things that Coach Carroll does is he shares uh, what his personal philosophy is and what his vision is with everyone. And then he says really clearly to his coaches, so 23 direct reports, uh, 23 other coaches in CF's organization, he says, I'm going to screw this up. I need you guys to help me get right sometimes. And I don't think I've not, I've not been in the, in the, around that many coaches that are willing to say that I've been around coaches who are, who are willing to say, this is who I am. This is what I want to do. But when things go awry, they get really distracted by the outcome. 
I think it's really, and, and what we're really talking about is like having a growth mindset and being on the pursuit of mastery, right? And Dr. Mike, the co-founder of our company, Dr. Mike Gervais, he always says, it's, it's really easy to have a growth mindset when things are going well, when you're hitting your numbers, when you're sitting with a group of friends having a beer, a glass of wine, it's really easy to st stay open to learning in those environments. When you're tested and you're not sure if it's going to work out, that's another thing. And that's when mindset skills come in as an advantage to staying on that path. Nice. And in your TED talk, you talk about those skills and having the capacity. So we usually don't find out our limitations within those skills until those moments of challenge. Can you talk about some things that we can do to help develop a capacity to succeed when we do face these moments where we actually have to make tough decisions and have that growth mindset? Yeah, that's a really good question. So in, in sport and volleyball, I, I don't know if you guys have heard this phrase, uh, when we want to set up an offense or a defense in relationship to what's taking place in front of us, like what the other team's tendencies are, we call it front-loading a play. We want to front load the training of mental skills before we get into <laughs> some difficult, stressful, pressure-filled moments, right? So it's a mistake to think that, like, um, it's a mistake to want to gen uh, train generating calm under pressure when you're most under pressure. <laughs> yeah. you're, you're not going to have done the work already, right? So mindset skills are just like any other skill or ability that we have. To get good at it, it requires training. So there's a couple of parts to this, right? Um, kind of like if, if you wanted to teach a, a little kid to play basketball, right? Do you start them at the half point line or do you start them under the hoop? Court, half court. You would. You would. With their feet. With their feet? Yeah. But backwards. So <laughs> the old grandmama. <laughs> yeah. Right. Under the, so under the basket, right? Right. So we want to start training mindset skills in, in less complex, less difficult, less stressful situations, right? And so if I want to train calm, for example, which is a skill, which has to do with our physiological activation, high heart rate, butterflies in your stomach, that tremble that you get in your hands and your legs, right? That's physiological activation. There's a direct relationship between how high we activate and how well we perform, okay? So that's what, when I say calm, that's what I'm talking about. If I want to be able to generate calm under pressure, I've got to be able to generate it in more quiet moments. So uh, that email that you get or that text from someone that sets you off and triggers you, like can you take a beat and a deep breath and get your heart rate to come down then? Or when you're, so that's a more quiet, calm situation. When you're driving on the freeway and someone cuts you off and then flips you off for some reason, right? And then your heart rate sh uh, shoots up all of a sudden. You want to cuss that person out, drive them down, run them off the freeway. I'm, I'm, I'm assuming this is what happens for you guys. Uh, <laughs> can you take a beat and a breath and generate calm in that moment, right? So then when we get into the thing where uh, the outcomes really matter, for us and we really care about what's going on and we feel our heart rate come up and we feel those quote nerves coming up we've done work to generate or uh, develop some sort of skill around breathing to help us generate calm so there's there's a couple parts to this is like what is our relationship with these situations um, do we have awareness of what's taking place for us in our body or in our mind to be able to guide 
those processes? And then have we practiced a skill? So confidence, for example, comes from self-talk. If we want to get good at confidence, then we have to get our self-talk right. It's really hard to get your self-talk right in a moment of test if you've not paid attention to it in the past. Because you'll go back to self-critique, to doubt, to frustration, because that's been your pattern your entire life. So we want to do it ahead of time. We want to front load the training of mindset skills in the same way that we front load training in all other aspects of our life. So, I mean, man, I'm, dig I'm really digging all the kind of the technical approach to this stuff. And I assume that, like you said, you weren't exposed to this as you were an athlete or until you got involved with the organization, right, Nicole? Uh, well, the last three years of my career, so after my second Olympics, our team started working with Dr. Mike. And oh, so- okay. I had exposure to it at the end of my career, unfortunately. Yeah, and so I was I, I was familiar with it and had started to wrestle with some of the concepts, uh, but I, I didn't understand them in the in the depth and breadth that I understand them now. And and as a level set, uh, I was more overwhelmed by how much more I wanted to learn than not being an athlete when I retired. So I'm in grad school finishing a master's oh, in sport performance. Nice. Well, hey, do you mind going into like kind of that the struggle you had? Because I'm trying to imagine our listeners here. Like, all right, so. What can I expect getting into this? You know, so so what did you learn about yourself through yeah. this process, maybe in the last three years? And as you refined it, what would you have done a little bit differently or uh, what light bulbs didn't go off? Yeah, there were a couple of things, especially in the last three years of my career, as I was starting to do this work around understanding what it was and also training mental skills. The first is that uh, for the first eight years of the 12 years that I was on the USA team, we had a really dysfunctional culture. And so it felt like shark infested waters. So one of my biggest challenges on a daily basis was not the volleyball stuff, right? Because I enjoyed getting my ass kicked. So that was easy. Like I'll work eight hours, I'll do nine hours, whatever you need. Uh, it was feeling like I could authentically express myself. And so once I started to do work around um, personal philosophy and understanding more of who I was as a human being and the value that I brought uh, to the environments that I was in outside of my skill set, then the end of my career became more about expressing myself in an authentic way on a daily basis. And uh, there's, you know, I, my performance also uh, saw the benefit as well. You know, like I, I had some of the best matches that I ever had in my career uh, towards the end of my career. Uh, but I also just enjoyed the experience more. You know, part of part of this, the deep inner critic that I had was that every day I left the gym feeling like a failure. Uh, and that's not fun. It's not fun to get to the edge of your capacity physically and emotionally and intellectually and then feel like shit at the end of every single day. That's exhausting. And it doesn't have to be that way. And that comes from our mindset, the way that we attribute, you know, good and bad things in our lives. So my experience also started to change when I started to do this work. The other part is I remember uh, it was early in my career, actually, in 2006, that I was we were training eight hours a day at that point, And I was waking up feeling angry to go to practice when I'd always loved uh, getting my butt kicked, as I mentioned. And part of the reason why I was angry is because I was so consumed with, with thoughts of things that were out of my control that I felt to be, I started to feel overwhelmed, right? And so control, internal locus of control is, is another mental skill that you can train. By definition, when we focus on things that are out of our control, we feel overwhelmed, we feel out of control. So 
looking back now, it's like, well, shit, no wonder I felt so angry every morning to go to practice because I was worried about what the coach thought. And I was worried about whether or not I was going to make outcome or rosters. I was worried about whether a teammate was going to be an asshole to me or not. You know, like none of that stuff is in my control. How I think, my effort, my attitude, my actions, that's all I got that's in my control. And so one of my greatest lessons and a filter that I'm constantly coaching myself through is like, what's in my control right now? And sometimes it's like you're almost having to, to scratch and claw to find it because often in the things that we're doing, it doesn't always feel like something's in our control. You know, in volleyball and team sports, I could be the best I could possibly be. But at the end of the day, the coach makes a decision about my life that's not in my control. And it's really hard to come to grips with that and then be all in every single day, not just in pursuing my best, but in a team sport, trying to help those around me be their best as well. So control is another lesson for me that really uh, hit home. And then optimism, which is not fluffy. I know some of you out there think like, as soon as I said optimism, your eyes rolled to the back of your head and you thought, oh, here we go. Rainbows and ponies. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about realistic optimism, which is the belief that something good's about to happen. And that's gotta be credible. You know, like you can't believe something good's about to happen if you don't work hard and you don't get uncomfortable every single day and you haven't earned the right to believe that. But having an optimistic lens is a competitive advantage, especially if you're getting to the edge of your capacity every single day to believe that something good's about to happen. That is really at the heart of mental toughness. And so when when we know that we're going to hear no more often than we'll hear yes or or that things won't work out as often as they will work out. We've got to have a deep-seated belief that something good will happen because that is the center of resiliency, our ability to bounce back from things when they don't go well. And so for me, training optimism was was uh, a huge game changer for me. I, I joke that I'm like a, a pessimist in recovery. You know, optimism is something that's learned in the same way that pessimism is learned. We learn it in large part from our, our parents when we're growing up, you know, so if mom or dad, when you came out of the grocery store, if someone else's cart hit your car and they say, um, God damn it, this shit always happens to me. That's a pervasive, pessimistic, explanatory style. So as young kids, as we're trying to make sense of like the world around us, we start to pick up on that, like bad things happen often. And then that becomes our own lens from how we see the world. When we think bad things happen often, that's the very reason why people pack up too early and quit. So if we want to really pursue our best in life, we've set huge goals or huge huge vision for ourselves in, in our lives, then shit's going to be hard. Plain and simple, it's going to be difficult, right? So what's going to keep you from packing up too early? Optimism, the belief that something good's going to happen. And so for me, that was a huge change, uh, those three skills. Not even saying stacking on top of that optimism that something good's gonna happen is like something good is is happening right now. I mean, compare yeah. yourself to the folks who didn't make the USA team or you know didn't get the job that you're currently working at and are out of work. Like you're in a pretty good fucking place for the most part. Now I'm not saying you know I guess that's kind of like a silver lining type of mentality, but then compounding that with this outcome op- optimistic outcome filter as well. I mean, yeah, you just keep grinding and then. Then you don't have to worry about it. You get tired, just keep going. Yeah, the, the only thing we're negative about is negativity. That's Yeah, I guess that's true. And then, so I did want to go back to, uh, man, what was the first filter? Oh, the, um, you know, walking out of the gym and kind of your lens or how you focus on failure, right? And that's, I feel like that's a big hot topic now in terms of like failure. And, 
you know, I think I've mentioned it on the podcast before, Tex. I don't know. Um, we so we run a we run a coach's certification, and and there's there's a failure rate. Like there is a pass and fail line. We have a rubric. Some people show up and they pass. Some don't. And within this space of professional development, you know, we it's it's so cliche to talk about rising from the ashes of failure. And I feel like not many clubs or educational. Um, organizations provide coaches the opportunity to actually fail and understand what their athletes are going through throughout the season. And uh, I think we're the only one where the the founder and CEO sits across from the table and has that very hard discussion. And, you know, that that's an outcome that happens in life. And I think that, you know, a philosophy I've been trying to take and I want to bounce off you is, you know, it's not necessarily, even if you fail or meet your objective, like there, a sense of dissatisfaction for a high performer should be present. And that's not to say that you failed. It's just to say, well, if you achieve your goal, that means you could have gone further. Mm-hmm. And if you didn't achieve your goal, that means you have ground to cover. But either way, like there's a reaction out of that outcome of the decision space or of you know that competitive endeavor or whatever you're putting yourself out there to do. And I'm curious, you know, what, what's your thought on that mindset? Yeah, I think uh, this fail fast, fail forward thing that has become popular is is tough because uh, a lot of people are in environments where they're they're being told, "Hey, we, we want you to fail because we know you learn from failure, right?" But there's a there's like a proverbial noose around their neck, and the minute that they do fail, that they're they're held to some consequence or they're judged in some sort of way, right? At the end of the day, though, although I don't. Um, I don't define success and failure based on outcomes, and I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that. Um, outcomes do matter. And so there is an invisible handshake that we all have in our context, right? Uh, in sport, it's like, we love you. You're talented. We want you to be around here and, until you're no longer producing for us, and then you don't have the right to be here anymore, right? right? And it's the same for, for people in corporate environments as well. It's the same for you guys when you're training coaches. If the coaches you trained ended up to be hack coaches, like, you don't have a job anymore, right? Mm-hmm. So there is an invisible handshake that we all have in our domains that we participate in. Uh, the thing is, is like, can, can we just let go of that at some point? Like outcomes do matter. Is the focus on outcomes something that helps us pursue mastery or pursue our best? Uh, the answer is no. Right. And science supports that, right? And so then coming back to like, how are we defining success and failure? Uh, I've borrowed this definition from Nick Lamb, who's a big wave surfer. If you guys aren't familiar with him, he, he drops into 60 foot waves. Uh, and so when when asked how he defines success or failure, he talks about failure as the moment that he's at the top of a wave and he, he decides not to go for it. There's a moment of hesitation. So the way that I've come to think about failure is not going for it and success is going for it, period. And whatever happens after that happens, but most people hesitate. Mm-hmm. Most people will hesitate. And it's a mistake to call something success. If you hesitated at some point you went for it, but you went half ass at it. Right. For me, that's not success. Like, did you really put yourself out there? Did you get to a point that you're really uncomfortable? Um, and if that's the case, then what are you learning from that experience? So for me, everything I do in life is more playing the long game about a pursuit of mastery. That being said, I don't think that's the human condition to be honest. So to your point, like if, if you achieved your goal, maybe that that means you could have done more. Maybe that's not everyone's uh, framework though. Some people, I would, 
some people want to put a hoodie on on the weekends and just chill. And there's no judgment in that. But that's what success looks like for them in their lives, right? By definition, the human experience is to fall back to what's comfortable. And so at, if you are really getting to the edge of your capacity or getting uncomfortable every day and in a purposeful and intentional way, by definition, you're an outlier. So I agree with you to a certain extent, except for the should. <laughs> I don't think everyone's built uh, in the same way, and I don't think everyone values mastery in the same way. If their definition of success aligns with that, great. Mm -hmm. If they feel like there's something more to give and they can't figure it out, then there's more work to do around self-discovery, you know? But I think everyone has a different, different definition of what success looks like in their life. For me, it's like, hey, did I go for it? And if I went for it and I failed epically, great. What am I learning from it? Yeah, I'm on board. I'm definitely on board got, with that. I got a quote you may like here. <clears throat> what you want from a goal is something that resides and transforms into something better as you approach it. The problem with being able to achieve it is you remove the benefits in your life that come from meaningful striving. So one of the Peterson's quotes I wrote down from his book, but I see the, the parallels and the connections, right? What next? Like, so what? Next? What's next? Um, yeah. I mean, probably everyone listening can resonate with the time where they set a, a big lofty goal in their life and they achieved it and it felt like relief instead of joy. Like, oh, thank God, right? That sucks. That absolutely sucks. And so, you know, we know from science that it's the pursuit of goals that is more joyful and fulfilling than actually achieving the goal. But then the question is like, why does the goal matter to you? And so like, if we're pursuing meaning and purpose in life, then those goals are just like stepping stones to purpose and meaning, you know? And then that becomes really fun, the pursuit in it. We enjoy the pursuit. Now we're talking about intrinsic motivation. Um, it just feeds itself. I, I got, I hate to do this, but I got to do it. There's a quote from the army field manual that just kind of boils my blood. So this is direct from field manual, chapter one, 16. Uh, Performance-oriented training involves performing tasks physically. The focus is on results, not process. It, yeah, I don't know. So that's the mindset, the approach that is taught in that manual. Crazy. If we've learned anything about the army and their processes, I know. they're purposely saying, don't worry about the process because it's totally fucked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But no, it, it is sad. And you know, I guess to clarify a little bit on... Um, on previous statement, it's not that outcome doesn't matter. It's that it's part of the, it's part of the equation. Right. And I think also it's, it's, it's a fluid component of performance in the sense that going back to that trichotomy of control, right. What you can control wholeheartedly, what you can influence and what's completely out of your control outcome exists in all three of those, not simultaneously, but in different scenarios at different points in time. So I think you have to have a fluid mindset and how you evaluate the proverbial outcome. Right. And, and that's such a generic term, too, because are we talking about within sports? Are we talking about, you know, what series you picked on Netflix that was a total fucking flop after 24 episodes? Or is it an amazing series like Lost? One of the best series on television. Still haven't seen I it. I stand by it. Still haven't seen it. <laughs> you know, and, um, and it's just interesting that there, it's, it's hard for some people to delineate that. Right. And then going into, I mean, Nicole, like what, what you're talking about with what is success, like absolutely. Um, man, I've been in a debate with uh, one of my best buds on this for like three months now about, you know, 
hey, re- realize what you're striving for. He and he's a pretty high performer. What you're striving for here isn't what makes people fucking happy. Like it might make you happy, but chill. You know, as you're talking to some of our, our pals or people in the office, like you got to chill. And uh, he's having a hard time with that. So no, it's 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 really great stuff, and it's interesting to hear your story of of kind of like your trials and what you were working on for those three primary filters at the end of your athletic career. So I guess going into that and maybe transitioning into that as you take on clients and maybe you're working in a, in a smaller cohort, do you find that it's common what folks are struggling with? Like in, let's say, that, that grand environment like Microsoft where you have thousands of employees versus you know uh, a football team or a volleyball team where it's a little less chaotic? I mean, is it, are there common threads? For sure, yeah. Uh, you know, like I said before, not everyone is on the path of mastery, but I think most people are searching for more. Uh, and part of that is meaning and purpose. But, you know, most people in the, uh, with the clients that we work for, they resonate with uh, the idea that they wanted to show up and be their best in some situation, but something's gotten in the way. And most often we get in the way of ourselves in those moments. And so uh, just the, like, how, how do I enjoy this experience more? that resonates. How do I show up and be me more often? You know, like uh, a lot of our clients are parents, you know, and they've got young kids that, you know, uh, as they're trying to get them out the door, they were dressed. And then five minutes before they're leaving, suddenly the shoe is off. One kid's brushing their teeth. There's toothpaste all over the window. And like, you know, now everything is chaotic. And then we're at risk of being late to get to school on time, which means that now I'm at risk of being late to getting to work on time, which means the three meetings that I have been concurrently um, put in, because they have three, they for some reason put themselves in three meetings at the same time, um, I'm gonna be late for those as well, which means I'm gonna be judged by my peers, right? And so that sets in motion chronic stress, more or less, you know, like activation. I talked about calm earlier, that one thing in the morning with their kids. So what happens is they drive their kids to school. They're activated already. They finally get to school and they're like, have a good day. And it's like, whoa, wait a second. Right. And then two hours later, they think back and they're like, ah, man, like, I wish I wouldn't have said that to my kids like that, you know? And then all it takes in their three meetings that they're in is for one person to say something that feels a little bit harmful for them to react and say something that's not in alignment with who they are, how they want to show up and be in that moment, right? And so everyone relates to the idea of like wanting to be the best version of themselves, but failing at it sometimes, you know? And it's because we don't have great command of mind when we perceive threat whether real or not, uh, to, to be able to act in alignment with our greatest values. So there's a very predictable path uh, and response that we all have to the perception of threat and stress. And that sort of activation uh, makes it really hip- difficult to think clearly and to show up and be you in moments. And so a common thread is just this idea of like, I want to show up and be me more often, whatever that is. How do I do that? You know, is it training optimism? Is it training control? Is it just recovering better in a world-class way? That has, for me, been one of the craziest things I've ever experienced. As an athlete, recovery is built in. It's built in as part of our ecosystem. No one on the world stage says, man, guys, we got to work harder. Everyone's working hard. It's the prerequisite to work hard on the world stage, right? What we talk about every single day is like, hey, what are we doing to recover right now? Are we getting eight hours of sleep? Are we thinking well? 
you know, like what's, what's going on with our thoughts? How's our nutrition? How's our prehab and our rehab, you know, cause we're doing the work. Already. When I first started working with corporate clients, 50% of the room would raise their hand and say, I get less than six hours of sleep on average per night. And then I'd say, okay, well, what are you going to do about that? I have a vacation in August for two weeks. I'm planning on recovering then. That's backwards. That model's backwards. If we're under-recovered and fatigued and full of anxious thoughts, it's impossible to show up and be your best self, especially if you are in an environment where there's stressors involved, whether they're your kids at home or your spouse at home or the natural environment of work, you know? So uh, I, think, I think there are very common threads. I just think the context and the environment is different. You know, going to just personal anecdote, that sense of feeling in, like entrapped by this in, this personality or behavior pattern that you put on at the corporate world is like a real thing. Like that's exactly why I pulled the ripcord. I had six years in a corporate gig and just like had to get the fuck out of there. I don't know. Like, and I, I realize now in retrospect, like it was self-imposed, you know, like I, I put myself in that corner, but I just found myself able to be more authentic in like a coaching environment in a gym environment. And then that ultimately led me to this, uh, you know, this career. But, um, and I've taught, we've had a few other individuals mention that that's why they've pulled their ripcord and got out of there. But it's interesting to understand it's, you know, it's self-imposed and I'm curious what life would be like if I had learned these tools in that, in that corporate job and, you know, where I'd be 14 years later at the old, Probably Navistar. not on the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. No, I probably have some like parts pricing podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, Nicole, you talked about skills, calm, control, optimism. So what are some limiting factors in, in our realm, in our ecosystem? We talk about limitations of performance, limiting factors. So what are some that you see that go against these skills that if we are just aware of them, like that growth mindset and self-awareness of some words that you say, self-talk negative, that you can adjust. So limitations that affect these three skills. Yeah, it, you hit the nail on the head, actually. Awareness is the greatest limitation. And so most of us don't have great awareness of our thoughts, especially the patterns of thoughts and beliefs that get in our way of us performing our best or having great experiences. And so it's without awareness that we can't, we can't train mindset skills if we don't have awareness of our thoughts or awareness of the physiological response to those thoughts. So awareness is key. And it's one of the reasons why we spend so much time teaching mindfulness meditation, because it is a practice for awareness. And it's necessary, mindfulness is necessary, but not sufficient for, for training these mindset skills. Necessary because we need more awareness of our internal experience so that we can guide it in some sort of way. Not sufficient because then we need to layer on mental skills to be able to, for example, generate confidence uh, in high stress situations. If we don't have great talk or great awareness of our self-talk, we can't do that work. Uh, if we, for example, don't get uncomfortable on a regular basis and enhance our capacity to trust ourselves to do difficult things, it's really hard to train trust in other environments. Now, if we don't have awareness, when we get uncomfortable, what takes place for us and how we show up, how do we do different? So awareness for me is the biggest roadblock to training any of these skills. And 
what I find is that most people don't have great awareness of what comes up for them in the moment because they've not spent the time sitting and reflecting through mindfulness practice or through journaling or however you like to do it. You know, but mindfulness is certainly an accelerated way to get to get to know your internal world. Uh, but most people don't have awareness, so it's hard to, to train these. Or you'll just do the 30,000 foot kind of surface level stuff like, oh, this thought gets in the way, I'm not good enough, but then never really get deep down into why does that thought keep coming up and is a pervasive theme in my life. Where, where did I hear that? It, it was probably another Jordan Peterson thing where it's like if, some, if you have this like re recurring thought of doubt or dissatisfaction, start to write it down and just write it down yeah. every time it comes up and like start to own it, make it a reality and dig into it. And it's, it's likely holding you back from something something better you know what's what's hard to be honest is like self-critique is a good example of this it's like self-critique i'm not good enough yet that's self-critique uh that's pushed many of us to get good in some sort of a way like i'm not there yet i'm not there yet i'm not there yet it's also like a little jab to the face though every time you do it right and so if you jab yourself in the face enough times what happens it hurts you get tougher oh yeah no it hurts <laughs> It hurts, right? It begins to become a deep bruise. And then, um, and so the way that I think about self-critique uh, is that it'll help you get good to a certain point. It'll never help you maximize your potential. Potential. And so there's something under the self-critique, you know? And so if we can understand why that's taking place for us, then we can start to utilize, I'm not good enough yet, can have the tone of growth mindset, right? Mm -hmm. But that's not the tone that many of us take with each with ourselves. There, mm -hmm. There's like a, a judgment that is under that, like you piece of crap. Because at some point, someone coached us like that. Yeah. And so we'll coach ourselves in the same way. So the tendency to be like a, a fair weather friend to ourselves, we'd never say this, the things that we say to ourselves to our best friend in a moment of crisis. Mm -hmm. But we, we say them to ourselves for some reason. And, and if we can figure out why we're doing that and let go of that, uh, then we can get to some real progress. So how do you reframe that self-critique piece? You know, I, I personally find value in it for as I try to develop and, and grow and uh, perform. But I, there's there's a positive, like, I feel like you could frame that positively, right? And the term that we've been using, I got from one of the guys we work with, is like this sense of positive dissatisfaction. And it's a commitment to continue to grow and Understand that, well, okay, if you're going to critique here, you have to retest and compare. And if there's forward progress, then it's continual positive dissatisfaction, right? Um, it, is there a way to, to frame that differently where it doesn't become this short-term solution that doesn't propel high-value growth? Yeah, I, I think there's a couple couple points to this is one like is it working for you or is it not only you know right and generally like the tone will determine that if if the tone of i'm not good enough yet is like I, i'm not good enough yet i'm such a piece of shit and it's not likely building resources for you okay if it's like i'm not good enough yet i'm almost there let's keep going there's a very different tone to that and so the next part is like why what are you pursuing and why does it matter to you? So we call this having a vision, which is a little bit different than a goal. But what is the meaning in your pursuits? Why have you designed your life in this intense way? And so when you are really connected to the why, then likely like that, that tone of like, I'm not there yet, I'm not there yet, has some excitement and vibrancy under it that's helping you do the next difficult thing, right? And then the other thing is, is like, are there other ways to think 
or to talk to yourself that do build resources for you or that do help generate confidence. So for me, I'm not good enough. It, it was more of the, the self-critical tone, right? And so what helps me now is this thought I can adjust because working hard comes easy to me. I don't need to tell myself to work harder. I don't need to do that. So me saying, oh, I'm not good enough, like for what? Am I going to work harder? No, I'm always working hard. So the thought though I can adjust has freed up a lot of space for me to like play when I'm uncomfortable and get after it. And when things don't go well, well, I'll adjust and I'll keep going. And so it's the process of adjusting and anchoring to like, hey, I'll figure this shit out. That has really created a lot of freedom for me to get to the edges of my capacity, whether that's physical, emotional, or intellectual, and still feel like I'm worthy in some sort of way. Nice. Yeah, I'd like to get into potential. So this is a, a term you used a lot. And I guess back when I was a sport coach, I had to recruit and trying to find out kids' potential, that was the most difficult thing because there's a lot of power in that position of me making a determination on somebody's potential, right? And sometimes it followed through, sometimes it didn't, sometimes I made mistakes, sometimes other coaches made mistakes. So how do you define potential and almost how do you communicate to an athlete or one of your clients where you identify their potential, but you speak to them to put them in a position to outreach it, to be better than even you thought they could. Yeah. There's two parts to this that I want to address. The first is that uh, I almost hate the word potential because <laughs> there's a certain connotation with it. And so uh, when, when I am looking at what's possible for other people, uh, there's a physical or intellectual talent right? That's usually present. But then what, what, what else is there? How does the person think about success and failure? What is their relationship with challenge? Um, what is their effort like? Have they had to do difficult things in the past? Are they gritty? You know, like these things matter. We know that these things matter more than basic intellect and talent. If we're looking at like the long game of of what's what is actually possible for someone in the long term right and so i want to look at all of those things in consideration of the talent that someone has uh, the second part is like to really uh, help another as a coach what i think uh, of of this is that your job is to help someone stay connected to what's possible for them and so there's a, a one, there's two parts to this. Like, have you taken the time to sit and really think about what's possible for someone? As coaches, often we fall into the trap because a lot of people are coaching from the let, let me find what's broken and fix it model rather than a strengths-based model. And so I'm a, I coach from a strengths-based model. Let me identify what someone's good at, those five things, and coach from there. Um, unless there's a glaring... <laughs> aspect that needs to be fixed, right? I know what it's like to be under the regime of a fix, uh, let me fix it model. I would pass a ball perfect and then I'd go in to watch video and the coach would say, see, you could get your arms straighter a little bit earlier. The outcome was what you needed it to be. Why are we hyper-focusing on something that really is not broken? Like there's lots of strengths that we could have pointed out here. So strengths-based model, sit, think what's possible for someone. And then there's either like, there's two ways to go about this to say, to get with that person and say, Hey, this is what I think is possible for you. And the beautiful thing about that is you get to plant a seed for them, right? Often um, other people can see what's 
possible in us that we don't necessarily see in ourselves. I find that, you know, another way to do this is rather than telling someone and planting that seed is to ask, Hey, what do you think is possible for you? And then you get a lot of information. So the, the, the nice thing about that is you get information into what's going on for them. So they might have huge dreams and you're like, well, wait a second. You know, like you never want to take someone's dreams away from them, but there is a calibration that needs to take place. Or they might shoot themselves really low, you know, like they might shoot for the stars really low. And then, you know, that there's some mental work that needs to be done that they can't see what's possible for them. So there's a calibration. Either way you come out of it, come at it, planting the seed or asking, there's a calibration that needs to take place where you put some adjectives and descriptors around like what's really possible for someone. And then again, your job is to keep that person connected to what's possible as a coach. So I think it's a beautiful thing to spend time, which is a very limited resource to think about what's possible for another person and plant that seed. Because uh, most people do have a lot of self-critique and, and they're not able to do that for, for themselves. That, that's a powerful statement. I'm going I'm to dive in and explore that. One of Nana McQuilkin, my grandmother's quotes was, reach for the stars and you'll land on the roof. Reach <laughs> for the roof and you'll remain on the sidewalk. And I always yeah. thought it was like a backhanded, like you're not going to be your D3 all-star. But um, yeah, the, this strength space model, I th- that is an extremely powerful. I'm going to explore that a little bit because I, I mean, even in my critiquing of my own coaching, there's a lot of that fix it model mm-hmm. in there. Definitely need to make some adjustments. But this stuff has to be a little bit fluid, doesn't it? I mean, it's, it, there's appropriate application for appropriate times for appropriate people or no? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So uh, the way that we think about coaching is that it starts with the relationship first and it is a mistake to coach different individuals as if they're all the same. And so uh one, what is your relationship with that person? What do you understand about what drives and motivates that person? What, what do they think is possible? Why do they even do the thing that they're doing? So most people try to skip over that relationship part or they spend too much time trying to understand it, right? Rather than asking important questions to really get to the heart of what is at someone's core? Why are they doing the things that they're doing? So one way that we cut through that is by sharing personal philosophies. Uh, and so we, we lead with that activity as coaches and as athletes, right? Uh, that is an accelerant to creating trusting relationships. And when trust is present in a relationship, then sometimes you can say something that might have a little bit of bite to it, but someone understands where it's coming from. Mm-hmm. So I think all coaching, uh, you can use the word leadership for that as well, starts with a robust and trusting relationship. And then from there, are you present enough with people to understand what takes place for them when they're challenged? Coach Carroll tells a, a famous story about one of his first experiences as a coach, as a, a graduate assistant with Bud Grant. Have you guys heard this story? No, go for it. Yeah. Uh, so he's a graduate assistant, Bud Grant, Hall of Fame coach, if, for those of you that uh, don't know the name. And they practice, uh, they finish practice and Coach Grant sends the guys, the football team, to run around the track. And so Coach Carroll saunters over to one of his, the other GAs and starts shooting the shit. And Coach Grant goes, Pete, what are you doing? And Pete's like, what? practice is over. Like, what do you mean, what am I doing? You know? And he's like, you're not watching your guys. You're not paying attention. Who's at the front of the pack? Who's at the back? Who's got their head down, sulking? Who's bringing other people along? There's so much information that you're missing by not being present right 
now. And so I think one of the biggest mistakes that we make when we're coaching, parenting, leading other people is that we don't pay attention because we're not present enough to learn the learner. This is another Coach Carol phrase. What is it like for people in different situations? And how does that transfer to when you're coaching them, leading them, parenting them? You can learn so much information about a person and how they can be coached best in environments or uh, situations outside of their craft, their domain, whatever it is. You know, and a, for example, for our corporate clients, what, some of the greatest information you can get is when you walk past someone in a hallway. Do they look up, say hi? Is there a vibrance to them? Do they look down when you ask how things are going? What takes place? Do they look you in the eye? Do they look away? Most of us are so concerned with ourselves or there's another trap, which is confirmation bias. We start to look for something and so we'll find it, right? And so if we can stay open, if we can stay present, if we can really be invested in learning the learner and developing relationships with others, then we can coach each individual in a really beautiful way that helps them pursue what is actually possible for them. And I think there's even a, a layer on that is in having the bandwidth to understand the shadow you're casting while you're doing that yourself, right? So you're presenting every single one of that, those pieces of data to other people while you're doing that. And I think that that's, a, that's like kind of another lens that a lot of the coaches we work with fail uh, to, to appreciate or understand that it exists. You know, if you're leaning on a piece of equipment, if your hands are in your pockets, if you're, you know, while you're doing this type of thing, you're, you're, you're casting a shadow and you don't even know, right? Yeah, we're, we're modeling the behavior that we want to see in others, whether we recognize it or not. You know, Coach Carroll, his philosophy is always compete. And that is something that he drives in all the organizations that he's in. If you went to VMAC, which is their practice facility here in Seattle, and watch practice, Coach Carroll's running everywhere. He doesn't walk anywhere. He's competing not with someone else to get there faster. He's just competing with himself. Can he get there as fast as he can? Can he model competition for others? So as coaches, leaders, parents, we're always modeling the behavior that we want to see in others. So are you reinforcing what kind of behavior? Ooh, I like see, it. text run everywhere, just like the kids. Oh yeah, so Luke's got this new philosophy, or is it a philosophy? No. <laughs> but an observation that kids just randomly burst and sprint, whether it's out in the middle of the street, or just away from the parents. And so he's taking it upon himself to just literally they parkour, like, you know, kid version of parkour everywhere. And I'm like, man, that looks fun. I'm going to do that now. So random 10 yard bursts <laughs> when we're on rainy street in Austin. It's awesome. Yeah. Take a run, jump on something. I don't know. Climb. Why not? Yeah. Why Those wait? Like why wait in line when you can hop Carol. that fence? So much in common. <laughs> Uh, I, man, there, there's a, a lot here. One of our, I guess, when we're teaching strength and conditioning and teaching coaches how to coach kids, athletes, we rely on some strength and conditioning principles. One of those is individuality. And at, at first glance, you may think, oh, this, this athlete's this tall or their femur's this long, and individuality means their, their body. But there's a lot, there's a layer to it, there's a level that we're all the same but we're all different physically and also mentally and emotionally in approach and how we learn. So that's, that's one thing I guess we're, we're diving in exploring and expressing deeper to our coaches. It's not just height, weight, width and all that. No, it's, it's how, how do they learn? Are they, they, do they see, do they hear, do they listen, do they read and what, what's their day like? So taking that mm -hmm. into consideration every single day, not yeah, just because it's not a static, it's not a static no. variable or static model, right? Yeah. So 
Just a lot of, I'm taking a lot of notes today, Nicole. I love that, yeah. Well, that's what we got, Nicole. Um, a random question, I guess Luke and I presented at a corporate office a couple years ago, and there was an assumption put onto us that I'd love to get your perspective. Um, they, I guess we, we name dropped some pro athletes and some colleges that we worked with, and they just assumed that these high functioning athletes wanted to train. They wanted to show up every day and work hard and be there. And we were pitching some corporate wellness where we'd show up at 6 a.m. and do some fitness for them. But they didn't understand the the professional athlete, the athlete. They just assumed that y'all wanted to, to work hard. So do you have to, I'm just curious, in your walking into corporations and presenting this, are they assuming that, uh, well, I mean, what are those assumptions that you got to, to battle and go in there? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think there's a natural assumption that athletes, all athletes like to get their butt kicked and they, and they work hard and that's not the case. Uh, I think, you know, it, it definitely, there are definitely different trends based on the, the sport and the demographic of athletes uh, that are, that tend to be in that sport, you know? Um, I think a common denominator for a lot of professional sports in the United States is uh, an idea of diversity, adversity, pain, is actually the, the driver to be in the sport. Um, you know, if you look at the NFL, the number of athletes who come from a single pan, uh, parent or no parent were raised by foster family or grandparents and came from poverty. The driving force is to get out of that, you know? And so do they like getting their butt kicked? Do they love football? Maybe not. Do they want a better life for themselves? Yes. And so they're mission minded. And I think that is a common, common denominator. So if I get rid of assumptions, I think there's a lot of assumptions. People make all kinds of assumptions. When I retired, I sent my resume out. People called me. I wasn't qualified to do anything because I've been playing volleyball for 19 years, but people called me because they made assumptions about who I am as an Olympic athlete. I think a common denominator though, between across, across the board, regardless of where people are coming from, um, is that high performers are mission-minded and purpose-driven. And does that always result in hard work? No, but when hard work is required, they're really willing to do it, even if they don't like it. And again, like I think the human condition is to fall back to what's comfortable. And that's what is different is the willingness to do difficult things, even if there is a positive reinforcement involved. One, one more. Um, I guess I, I can't remember if this was from a podcast that I listened to or someone that we talked to. I think it was Angela Duckworth. We went into self-esteem and it was almost, a, she said it was like a byproduct. So I'm curious on your approach to self-esteem developing for people that may be in that void of loss of uh, identity or what we say earlier, um, loss of from the TED talk. I can't, can't find it in my notes here, but how, how would you define uh, self-esteem essentially yeah. an approach to building it? Yeah. Self, self-esteem is a sense of worthiness. Self-efficacy is a belief in our abilities. And then confidence is our ability to generate, um, generate a sense that I can go for it right now. 
And so the, the three are very closely linked. I think self-esteem is challenging because it ties into this idea of like belonging versus fitting in. And especially with young kids, we're, they're developing a sense of self-esteem from others, you know, parents, peers, all that sort of thing. So as coaches or mentors of young performers, we're in a unique position to help develop and enhance that. Um, but with the caveat that are we helping them be their most authentic self or be someone for somebody else? And so then, then we're getting into this difference of belonging versus fitting in. And so if we can help kids get really clear and celebrate their uniqueness as a human being, then we can help drive a sense of worthiness. Um, and then if we can help them build efficacy for their abilities, I can do this, even if it's difficult, even if the outcome isn't what I want, I can try again. Um, and I got someone who's got my back in this process, then that's a beautiful thing that we can give people as well. So I think it's integral uh, for just human development. I think there's this, uh, what I want to call it, social conflict right now uh, with especially the the generation younger than me, so the millennials, about this, like, do I belong or do I fit in? And there's a lot of trying to fit in. And what's hard is, like, as, as human beings, we're built for belonging. Uh, we're built for um, social interaction. And I think there's this real confusion around what that means right now. Um, belonging is like, this is who I am. I, I kick ass. I'm a unique human being. And by showing up and being that most often, I'll find my tribe. I'll find my people. Versus um, this looks shiny and fluffy and you seem cool to me. Let me try to be that, even though that's not who I am at my core. And so I think if we can help kids develop a sense of worth around who they uniquely are and naturally are as human beings, we can set them up um, maybe for greater performance in the future, but just to enjoy life and feel like they've they, they belong in, in whatever environment that they're in. On, the, on your TED Talk, you gave kind of a, some skills and drills for people to walk away with to start to get uncomfortable. Do you want to cover a couple of those? Yeah. Uh, so the way that we think about training trust in ourselves, so most people, when they think about trust, they think about their relationships with other people, which is really an extension of our of the way that we um, relate to ourselves or trust in ourselves. And so the way that we think about training trust is by expanding our capacity to get uncomfortable and learning something about ourselves in that moment. So there's, there's lots of ways to do this. What um, gets people, most people uncomfortable is a sense of unknown or a little bit of risk, whether it's physical or emotional or intellectual. So like, can you, as Eleanor Roosevelt says, do one thing every day that scares you a little bit, right? So that's how we expand our capacity to trust. In theory, if I can trust myself in any environment, even when there's unknowns and it's difficult, there's a little bit of risk, in theory, I don't need to trust other people as much, right? So we want to get to a point where we can be self-sustaining, self-sufficient. So the one way to do this is to do something that gets you a little bit uncomfortable every day. Uh, one, for some people, complimenting a stranger would be that thing. So compliment one stranger every day for the next 10 days. So that means you're standing in Starbucks and you're waiting in line and you've got to scan the room to find something that's beautiful about another person. And what will likely take place is your heart rate will come up your breathing will increase. You might start to sweat or feel flushed. You might, your hands might start to tremble. 
When you finally find someone to compliment, hey, you have beautiful eyes, what happens for you? Do you want to run from it right away because it's potentially really awkward and uncomfortable? Or can you just sit there and be you? What if that person starts crying? That's the first time they've been complimented in 10 years. Or what if they ask for your number? What if they call you a creep? What happens? Can you just be you in that moment rather than running from it? So that's the that's really like the learning and the measure of success in this. Not like, hey, did you knock these 10 things out and not pay attention to what happened? So complimenting a stranger is a great way to do this. Asking for a 10% discount every day for the next 10 days for a good mm. service that you buy, well, you know? Well, good guy discount. We, yeah, we call that the good guy discount. And good if, guy discount. Yeah, if you got the balls to ask. And they like, I don't know what that is, but I'm going to go ahead and give it to you. <laughs> Happens all the time. Uh, another way to do this is to just try something new, whether it's a new sport or a new fitness activity, uh, go to a random dance class, like do something completely random. Groupon is a great place to kind of get creative with random, uncomfortable stuff to do. Have difficult conversations that you've been putting off. That's also another way to get uncomfortable, learn something about yourself. Um, so there's, you can get creative with this. Everyone's like, a, a boundary of discomfort is different. You know, for some people, like, um, for me, small talk, I hate it. So like, if I wanted to get uncomfortable and be put myself in positions where small talk is required, like cocktail parties, you know, um, for some people speaking in public is really uncomfortable. Do Toastmasters for six weeks, you know, like get to the edge of whatever it is for you. It's all relative, but learn something about yourself in that space. As you'd imagine on the 10th day of doing this 10 days in a row, it feels just a little bit easier to be you and you can trust that you're going to show up and not say funny things or act weird <laughs> when you're uncomfortable. So you get the, I think those are, those are great. I love them. What about for if you're trying to maybe mentor pipsqueaks, younger kids or adolescents who, you know, and again, like going on that scale of where those boundaries are for comfort, um, any any like practical toolkits for those types of individuals? What age? Let's say fourteen. Fourteen. Okay. So I'm asking, hey, like, what what? Wherein do you feel most uncomfortable in this situation? I think asking is a, a great way to start to get some idea. They'll reveal something. They'll reveal that they have awareness, or just the simple act of you asking what makes you uncomfortable makes them uncomfortable. So then <laughs> that's a teaching point as well. You know, like, hey, did the, this question just make you uncomfortable? What about it that makes you feel uncomfortable? What's this experience like for you? That's another thing is just asking the question of like, hey, what was that experience like for you? will reveal something about their the edges of their comfort zone. So then you can help shape that for them. Okay, like next time when you're in this same situation, um, what do you think you can do? How do you think you can push it a little bit? What, what would be uncomfortable for you? What if you leaned into that? I wonder, you know, like my greatest hope for people is that they can be in difficult and uncomfortable situations and kind of smile a little bit because they know that something's good, something good is on the other side of it. So the more that we can teach that like growth and learning is on the other side of right when we get to that space, like the, the better coaches we can be for people because we're setting them up for success in the long run. Yeah. I mean, the proverbial, you got to stress to progress. Oh yeah. Right. I mean, <laughs> beautiful. Strength, guys. One more. Uh, going back going back to your athletic career and mine's only limited to very small college but i always saw a difference between just seniors and freshmen in the appreciation right that you can count your remaining games on your hands 
right? And so it is always this switch, this transition. Some guys had it for four years. Some guys, it didn't click until it was their last season. So then they started putting in the effort, the work, the career. So, I mean, at the highest levels, were those athletes that were just happy to be there, get their name on the jersey? Or was, you know, most people switched on an appreciation of their their moment, the opportunity which they had? Uh, That's a tough question. I think I've uh, been fortunate to be in just extremely successful environments, uh, or let me say high achieving environments. And so um, I don't know that my my experience will generalize. (laughs) I think at at USC when we were there, um, that there was a sense that we're all in this and we're trying to we were trying to create a dynasty and we fell short. We only won two national championships, but we wanted to create something that was lasting. And we were really, really deeply committed to that. And the way that people expressed that was a little bit different, um, but there was a sense of pride in, in putting on a USC jersey every time we, we walked onto the court and what we were creating and ownership in that too. When I first got to the national team, uh, it didn't feel like a privilege to be there. Like there were definitely girls that would come in where it was like, I'm entitled to be here. And this is, this is before this like whole entitlement millennial thing, which I don't, I don't know that I necessarily buy into, but uh, because they were the best of the best that where they came from, they felt like they, they automatically earned the right to wear a USA uh, uniform and that like work stopped there, so to speak. And there was a, a shift that took place. Some of the greatest athletes that I competed against in college couldn't hack it on the USA team for that reason. They felt like they um, just had the right to be there and they weren't willing to continue to do the difficult work and to, to help others along that process, you know? And there was a shift that took place. Um, p- part of it was um, as our culture started to shift, but also uh, Karch Karai. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Karch Karai's, but those of you who aren't familiar, Karch Karai is um, the greatest male volleyball player to play in the history of the games, not just American, but internationally. He's got uh, three gold medals, one indoor, two beach. Um, and so he was our assistant coach um, for the, the 2009 to 2012 quad, and then he became the head coach uh, in 2013. For the Since then, he's been the head coach. And um, there was something about what he was modeling for us as the greatest player in the history of the games to come in and be invested in learning in the way that he was. Like I remember uh, in 2013, when he took over as head coach, our first meeting, he started the meeting by saying, I'm not good enough yet. As a coach, as a learner, as I'm, I'm not there yet. And none of us in the room, and there were five time Olympians in the room, none of us in this room are good enough yet. And so there's something about as a, as an assistant coach, what he was modeling for, for us. Uh, but then as a head coach and, and explicitly saying that out loud, that was like, wow, we don't, we don't just get to be here. Like this is a privilege. And then also like there was a shift too, is like, this is about something greater than us to be able to put on a USA shirt and to represent our country in the greatest uh, sporting event known to man 
Like this is about something much greater than us. And it is a privilege to put on a red, white, and blue USA shirt every single day. And so that really shifted. And so even in the hard days, it was like, man, I'm so, we're so fortunate to be able to do what we do. And when we didn't earn the right to do that, we'd be kicked out of practice. Like there were days where Karch's veins in his neck were you know, popping out and he was yelling at the top of his lungs because we weren't earning the right to be there that day. And so there was a shift that took place for us from like, hey, yeah, yeah, I get to be here because I'm the best from where I come from to, wow, this is amazing. We get to do this thing every single day. So. Man, that's like some storybook shit. Oh, yeah. That's great. She, that's a great teaching perspective moment. I know a lot of coaches kind of struggle with that. I struggled with it as an athlete, right? Freshmen go out and during some of the biggest games that I had left in my lifetime. But um, ah, that's powerful perspective. Um, man, cool. And then, you know, as an athlete, like you were talking about those, those last few games and people that like finally click their senior year. If you, if you can hold on to that beginner's mindset of like, I'm not good enough yet, so much good takes place in the way that we perform. You know, if we're just like completely engrossed in it, what can I learn? How can I push the edges of my limit? This is amazing. Just like when we were little kids, like anxious to run outside and play. That beginner's mindset is where all the good stuff takes place in terms of performance. And so the, the more that we can hang on to that, and I think that's what tends to click at the end, is like there is an end. So why do I care so much about the outcomes? Like, let me just love this. And what comes with that is like just an openness to experience. So the more that we can hang on to that and help others hang on to that is a pretty cool thing. Totally agree. If you don't mind, I'm going to bounce back and pivot pretty hard um, on this your mindset on this millennial entitlement thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I, to be truthful, I don't know that I have a firm position on it, but it seems to be a topical discussion at times when you're in like these social types of discussions. What's, uh, so why, why are you, uh, why are you leaning towards not buying into it? What's your observation? I just, uh, you know, I, I think, I don't think entitlement is the right word. I just think there's a, a different mindset uh, to the way that they approach things. You know, like our parents, for example, they they took they had careers in the true sense of careers. You know, like they spent 20 to 30 years at a company, and even when it was shitty, or even if it was like it didn't matter, they were going to stay in that career. And that's not the nature of our world anymore. Jobs that exist four years from now, when these kids are just starting college as freshmen. 25% of the jobs that will exist four years from now don't exist today. So to, to call um, a mindset entitlement because they're curious and interested in what's possible and don't feel like they have to stick something out that's really shitty for 30 years, I don't think that's entitlement. I think it's different. I think there's a, a different or better word for it. Uh, that's not to say that like my mom lives in Newport Beach. I know a lot of entitled people in Newport Beach, California. Sure. Are they all millennials? No. So I, I think yeah, it's, it's a mistake to, yeah. to generalize and call it an entire like generation of kids entitled because they're curious and interested and they do things different. Um, is that present? Yeah, but it's present in all of our generations. Yeah, and that, that's, that tends to be whatever I come back to is like the, the blank, the broad stroke. Yeah. The, the uh, what, what certainty or... Uh, what do I, what was I saying? We never speak in absolutes. <laughs> yeah. The, the absolute statements like that, because I know I've met switched on kids that are, you know, have that proverbial grit and I know those people exist and I, it's probably in a broader population, but 
for whatever reason, man, I, and it just takes me back to, did you ever watch show, uh, Mad Men? You ever watch that show? I didn't. I don't watch a lot of television. Sorry. So, I've heard it's good. It, and I never finished it, but like, it was funny. The first couple seasons, what they, you know, from my understanding is when it was first aired, like there's similar topical type of like social issues that were unique to this generation and the, you know, in the generation before, maybe it was like a millennial thing. I can't remember, but like, you know, the producers of that show essentially just, you know, took what we thought was unique, a unique perspective of 2001 or whatever the fuck it was. And like they retold the story in this era of, you know, the, uh, 19, 60s? Yeah, 1950s, 1960s. It's like, no, this isn't unique. And I think it's just like we find these blanket statements for, for these different generational groups, and there is a spectrum. And maybe there is it, – it he- becomes heavily weighted based off of the generation before it who are their parents, right, and how it could be perceived. But, man, I'm not sure I totally buy into it either, but it's always fun to debate buddies who are just so fucking sure, you know? <laughs> I do think, uh, you know, anxiety and depression is on the rise mm-hmm. and there's the social cultural aspect to it. I think this generation is more anxious than my generation and generation before. I think they're under much different demands uh, and it's much more public, everything that they do. So I think there's a good reason for those trends. So I think also part, part of my um, unwillingness to buy into a broad sweeping generalization is that they're under different demands and there's a sense for me of, of compassion that life is different than it was for me when I was 14 to 23 years old and uh, you know I feel fortunate that I didn't have a cell phone in my hand when I was four years totally. old I had my first cell phone when I went to USC and I was 18 years old and uh, and data wasn't there was no iPhone at that point you know I feel fortunate not to have grown up in this era where kids, four-year-old kids know how to use a cell phone better than I do, and it becomes part of their daily rhythm. So I think the demands are completely different, and that the more that we can have compassion for the differences and try to understand what's going on, uh, the better. I I think millennials and Generation Z are going to change the world. So They got the best opportunity, man. I mean, with an understanding of technology and high-velocity change in culture and data and social issues, you'd think that it'd be, there's going to be some pretty agile groups of high performers that could do great things, right? Be interesting to see. Or we're all fucked. Nothing is fucked. (laughs) I like to hit text with the doom and gloom every once in a while just to see Uh, see how he reacts. Contrarian, I believe, as you mentioned earlier, there's always one of those. No, there isn't. There's always one of those in the room with me. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, buddy, it's to keep you, you know, just to keep you on your toes, keep you in check. Don't want you getting too comfortable here. To build my confidence and always say what I'm feeling, knowing that you're going to (laughs) say the exact opposite. But I back it up with compassion and love inside and outside the office. You're a good pal. You know that first compliment. We're all about the only thing we're well, negative the first about. Compliment on the air. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I got. I don't have anything else. Yeah, I think that's. Um, I guess one thing I want to dive into, and I'm looking for suggestions. So we don't have to keep you for another hour. The culture methodology. This is a, a phrase you dropped early on in the episode that I wrote down. So if you have a resource for this, or this is something that y'all have developed and provide for your clientele, where can we learn more about this creating this, this culture in which we've spent the last 90 minutes discussing? 
Yeah, I, I think uh, there's a mistake in that um, people think that you can't teach culture or that you can't develop culture in a purposeful way. And if you're not developing it in a purposeful way, then it'll just take place. And the trap in that is that if you, um, culture really is about relationships and we build relationships through language and interaction. And if you have people who, um, so now let's go a little bit deeper, our language is an extension of our thoughts. And so if you're highly anxious, if you're frustrated, if you're worried about what could go wrong all the time and you're fatigued, then what's your language like? It's representative of anxiety and fear and fatigue. So then what's the culture like? Anxious, fearful, fatigue. So that means it's averse to risk, averse to uh, iterating and failing. And so then creativity isn't present. Psychological safety isn't present. So there's a risk in just allowing culture to happen rather than purposely developing it. And so, you know, there's lots of ways to do this. We have a particular methodology around it. Um, But really at the heart of it is like, if you have certain values, if you value mindset, for example, do you teach it every single day? And you can teach these things every single day. So if you ask Coach Carroll, the most difficult part of his job as a coach, it's saying the same thing over and over and over a million different ways, because if you don't, it won't get deep enough. And the testament to that is if you see Coach Carroll give a, a, a press conference, and then you see one of the athletes on the Seahawks give a, a press conference, they sound exactly the same because the language is so consistent within the organization about how we do things around here, what we care about most, and how we're going to express those values. So um, you can go read books. Um, Culture Code is a great book to read if you're interested. Uh, The science is wonderful as well. Um, You can drop into our course at competecreate.net. Our course is called Finding Your Best. And uh, the last couple modules of that online course, which is an eight-week course built around mindset, but the last couple modules is around developing culture. And Coach Carroll teaches that in the course. so those are my two recommendations for you um, in terms of building culture. And if, if people you want, want to bring to... us into build culture, you can also reach out and we can, we can do that as well. Yeah. So where, <laughs> where could they reach out or like, you know, if they want to follow you, Nicole, or learn more about the organization. So you can go to, again, compete2create.net to find out more about our organization, our team, uh, our online course, and then our events that we offer, our in-person events. Um, For me, all of my social is the same, Nicole M. Davis 6. Um, And so you can find me on LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, uh, Twitter, all that jazz. Uh, Yeah. Awesome. That's the plug zone right there. So uh, I'm happy, like, uh, if you, if folks have questions from this, like, please reach out, LinkedIn, wherever. Um, I, I try to answer all those questions. So I'd be happy to connect with people. You ever down in Austin? Uh, yeah, I am. Uh, I don't have a trip planned soon, but, oh, okay. sorry. And then another thing, if you if you do decide to hop into the Compete to Create Finding Your Best course, if you're interested in training mindset, um, you can use the code ND50 for a $50 discount. What? You got 10% on top of that? <laughs> I'm, I'm not in control of that. <laughs> I'm supposed to ask as part of my 10-day plan. I could, I would. I love that you asked. <laughs> well, if you're ever out in Austin, drop us a line. It'd be fun fun to hang out and catch up. And thank you so much for taking the time to sit here and chat with us, man. Some Maybe the fastest 90 minutes. Oh, yeah. That's I took a lot of notes. 
Yeah, beautiful. Because we don't have the big guy talking over us nonstop. See, so, Nicole, we have this third featured guest, John, our CEO, and all he does is just talk, 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 talk. And then Tex and I just have to sit here and listen to the same stories over and over again with our five listeners. And uh, but so it's been a breath of fresh air without him. So <laughs> glad no, I can be there for you. And it, I'm glad we got that on record. <laughs> well, it, as is tradition, if you don't show up, you get roasted. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, Nicole, thank you so much. And uh, to our listeners, you've listened to another episode of the Premier Podcast. In strength and conditioning. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. Go to competetocreate.net, and there you can entertain hopping on one of their programs. There is an eight-week course that is essentially to develop a high-performance mindset, and I think it's reasonably priced, but if you need a bit more incentive, don't forget to use that discount code ND50 for a $50 discount upon registering. And if you just became as much of a fan of Nicole as I did, you can follow her on all of social media. Again, her handle at Nicole M Davis six until next time. Bye.